Hey, it's the Light Breakfast here with Belle and JD. Your mental health hour. Mind matters on the Light Breakfast. And today we have Dr. Philip George, consultant, psychiatrist, and addiction medicine specialist from IMU. He's here to discuss articles on mental health. Now, our first article, I think this one actually, the people in Wuhan are complaining that they are being followed by mm. plain clothed police, even though they're healthy people. Yep. And they're like tapping into their phone lines, mm. listening into what they're talking about. Paranoia yeah. is rife right now with the coronavirus outbreak, not only in China, but here in Malaysia. Asia as well yeah. people are buying masks in like bulk. crazy yeah. in bulk they're hoarding mm. it how does paranoia actually begin or manifest insane people well actually paranoia is not always due to a mental disorder and it can be a symptom of acute stress in a vulnerable into individual so you know if it's a disorder then it has to last for a longer period of time it has to have other features like it's interfering with the day-to-day work mm. and it's causing them to have deterioration but in vulnerable individuals it can you know in acute stress it can actually create a lot of isolation fear of being infected fear of being you know monitored and it's especially true as if those who have experienced trauma before in their lives. So yeah, paranoid delusions is a bit different. It's it's actually a fixed false belief and that's not amenable to change. You can't make them change from that. But paranoid ideas are typical in periods of stress. But is it like, if I'm paranoid yep. and let's say Belle isn't, yeah. if I'm very paranoid about something and I constantly say it and everything, will she start getting paranoid? Is it like contagious? Yeah, so delusions can be shared and it's, uh, <clears throat> well, it's quite a rare condition. Some people have paranoid delusions that are shared and that's called folia do and if it's shared among three people then it's folia true and if it's four people folia okay accord, it goes on and uh, on. it goes on and on but it's pretty rare it's only among people who are very close to each other so like siblings and they live together and they're you know sort of devoid of external influence or stimulation and so the one individual who already is vulnerable develops a paranoid belief or mm idea and then because they're so close it's shared among the next person so in this case of the Wuhan coronavirus is it because we are all afraid of this virus that's why the paranoia yep I I think it's the fear and the unknown Uh, that's the main factors now our next article there are lots of statistics in here Mm. but it basically just says that there are more and more young people who have mental health issues and it's starting at a younger age at that so how much of these mental health issues are hereditary and how much of it is due to the environment or how they are raised or the upbringing of this child well, I, I think this study is actually looking at children aged between 5 and 19 and has actually identified that environmental factors play a bigger role than hereditary. Now, in Malaysia, we know that mental health issues among children is actually on the rise. And the last natural health and morbidity survey showed that children between the ages of 5 and 15, the prevalence was almost 13%. So that's quite huge, you know. So I think some of the factors that they identified in this study that were environmental were essentially one having dysfunctional families and I think this is something that I'm really passionate about because I see this in my own patients I see patients with depression anxiety drug and alcohol use problems and they start at a young age because they can't cope with the issues in the family you know the families are feuding they have poor parenting skills financial crisis there's a one parent issue and you know all of that has a huge impact on developing minds you know I, I think it's really important for us to think as parents are we equipped 
to actually bring up children who are going to be mentally, you know, well and, you know, be able to cope with things. Do but this well. study says it's between 5 to 19, though, in, yeah. in children. How do you, I mean, like, 5 years old, yeah. how do you know whether a child has mental health issues at 5 years old? So, actually, there are specific mental health issues that are more common in younger children. For example, autism. That's usually picked up at the age of about 2 to 3. Okay. And then ADHD can actually happen around about the ages of 4. There are... um, you know conditions that occur mainly in toddlers like temper tantrums Mm. and dysfunctional behaviors my youngest patient was seven years old she was just having school refusal and abdominal pain and the doctors wanted to actually operate and do a uh, I mean a laparotomy to just try and figure out what the pain was due to Uh, but they decided to refer her to a psychiatrist first and identified that she actually had this pain to avoid going to school so that she could help her mom who was a personality and who lost her husband recently. Mm. Wow. And so her fear was if I go to school and come back my mom might die just like my dad did. It's family therapy. You know, everyone plays a role in helping the child get better. Now this next article it's all about eating disorders and some of the myths (laughs) of eating disorders. So we're going to get Dr. Philip here to help debunk these myths. The first one is that eating disorders only affect teenagers. Specifically, teenage girls. Mm. Actually, that's not completely true. As we know, eating disorders usually start in teenage life. And it's a way of trying to gain control in a world where the developing mind feels that they are being trapped and being controlled themselves. So the control can be on their body image, on you know their weight, or on the quantity that they eat. So yeah, one in 20 people do suffer from eating disorders in their lifetime. And there are generally three types of eating disorders. There's anorexia nervosa, and then there's bulimia nervosa and finally binge eating disorder. In most of these eating disorders, they start in teenage life, but bulimia can start a little later compared to anorexia. And although they start in adolescence, it can actually carry on in adulthood. You know, usually the people who don't get adequate treatment and all of that, they continue into adulthood. I think you would have heard of Karen Carpenter, the Carpenters passed away because of anorexia nervosa, but that was in adulthood. It's not a disorder just of teenagers. It may typically start then but it'll carry on and binge eating disorder is now known to actually affect people from different age groups Mm. as well it doesn't just start at teenagers but it's not only just about body image issues right there's a whole lot of other things going on yeah there's a whole lot of other things I mean body image is maybe this core feature but the other things are a lot about control and, you know, right. having control and uh, feeling that they need to deal with emotional past traumas and they use food and, you know, their body. Or the lack of food. Yeah, yeah or the lack of food as a way of doing uh, coping with How it. about in terms of gender? Do females get more eating disorders as compared to male? Yeah. Or, or is it just females? Yeah. Well, again, it depends on the type of eating disorders. So in anorexia and bulimia, it's usually more in females. The ratio is about one to four. 25% may be males so it does still happen in males uh, but in binge eating disorder it's almost equal the ratio is almost equal now our next article is all about foreign workers mm. so it can be domestic workers or labour workers mm. and how they are at risk of mental health issues because of course they've been separated from their families sometimes yep. some of them are being abused and things like that they're living in conditions that are not ideal in yeah. some cases right? so my question is should we do a mental 
mental health evaluation for all domestic and foreign workers? Well, actually, there's a big difference between blue-collar and white-collar workers. There have been studies before that actually suggest migration. You know, foreign migrant workers and migration, doesn't matter what it is, has an increased level of mental health issues. But when they teased out the issues in the study, they identified that those who were moving for better, greener pastures and, you know, trying to up themselves and all that sort of thing and, you know, maybe uh, were white-collar workers had less mental health issues than the general population that they moved to. So if you're migrating to a country, a developed country or something, your risk of mental health issues sometimes is less than the population that you're going to. But for those who are running away, they already have issues in their home country, poverty and, you know, abuse or other sort of marginalized Maybe a war-torn issues. war-torn country, yeah. Yeah, and so they're leaving that to get to a better place, but they're involved in blue-collar work. They have higher risk of mental health issues. Mm. Should we test? Well, we do test them for medical problems. You know, you have for MEMA, for yes. maids, yeah, for yeah. foreign mm-hmm. workers. But mental health evaluation is not so simple. You can't just do a questionnaire or a simple little... There are a lot of false negatives. So if you want to have a real rigid mental health assessment, it's going to cost a lot. You need professionals to do it. It's over several sessions. It's not just the one-off. And you need to also speak to family. You need to, you know, when we do a mental health assessment, it takes maybe an hour for the first session and takes several sessions before we can actually evaluate that. I see. Now, this next article is very interesting. I think we as humans, we are all born to be people pleasers. Mm. So sometimes it's hard hard for us to say no to something that we really truly do not want to do. So doctor, are we programmed to always say yes? And why the need to always say yes? Well, actually, people, generally speaking, are social beings. We try to please each other so that we can remain connected. Our survival, I mean, actually, this is the old part of the brain. It's called the limbic lobe. And that was the only part of the brain that we had from ancestors. It was all about survival, survival of the species, you know, run away from predators and kill for food. And so in that brain that we've inherited, we have part of it as to form groups and being accepted. You see, so we cooperate and unite with each other and even though we don't need the group to fight predators like we you know they used to before but it's important to just need to fit in and remains a very strong desire so it has its benefits like being part of the group and you know builds our self-esteem and makes us more popular and you know improves our reputation and definitely avoids criticism ostracism and exclusion and conflict but then there are you know you gotta get a balance because the moment you go beyond then it starts eating into your own quality of life and you know your own personal space is encroached as well I don't really know how to say no yeah. most of the time how do you learn to say no and effectively right and without yeah. offending other people yeah. so actually in my practice I have to teach this to my patients uh, so people with a drug uh, or alcohol use disorder have to after you know detox go through the period of relapse prevention and one of the most important triggers to avoid is peers people who are still using will be the biggest trigger for them to relapse into their drug or alcohol use and so I teach them how to say no because they have been used, so used to saying yes 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 and they're worried about this is a good friend I've been marginalized my family kicked me out this was the guy who gave me some space and now I'm going to say no no. So I teach them to say no and make it meaningful and really convincing and really firm. Interesting. I like that. 